Hello and welcome to episode 11 of LA Meekly. Hello. Um, we're not going to do an intro <laughs> this month because we think that they're getting kind of stupid. <laughs> so we're stopping. Yeah, we that. don't want to go over two hours anymore. No, yeah. not this time. Trick or treaters! How much of the candy is left? None. F- finish the cough drops. We only have cough syrup. Is that still allowed? <laughs> Just a minute. <laughs> well, we don't have any candy. But what we do have are stories. Well, they aren't scary stories. Unless you find the fickleness of the general public's ever-shifting tastes in horror movies scary. Ooh. Grab him, grab him, get that one by the devil's tail. Watch the prong. Now sit down, take off that devil's mask, and get ready to listen. On some cough syrup? <laughs> You got tricked, not treated. That was a little bit of a trick and a treat. It was for a treat everybody. for us. It was a trick for everybody else. Who had to sit there and listen to us kidnap a child? You thought it was just an apple. There's a razor blade. In there. <laughs> so uh, once again, this is uh, Daniel Karloff, Greg Lugosi. I know. Look, I know there's spirits everywhere. Be frank, Einstein. <laughs> I know there's spirits. Everyone's in the spirit of spirits, and they're all telling scary stories. We don't do that until mm-hmm. uh, whatever the religious holidays are. The the duo holidays. Yeah, yeah. The, I like them. Yeah. I, well, I like what we do. I don't like holidays at all, but I do like what we do for holidays. <laughs> so we're not going to tell scary stories this time, but we're going to tell the story of Halloween culture in LA. I'm going to talk about uh, war. Huh. What is it good for? Something. <laughs> Absolutely everything. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the monster movies. The classics. The, the classic Universal monster movies. The history of Universal. Why okay. Why they started doing monster movies. Why in LA. Why. Why. Oh God. Why. I hope you answer all those questions. All those whys. <laughs> We're going to get to the reason. Is there a God? We're going to find out <laughs> tonight. Live. <laughs> on this very special episode. of One of us will cry. <laughs> it's not going to be me. I'm going to be talking about Force Ackerman, a legacy he has created here in L.A. He's a hometown hero, and he's uh, done a lot for horror and sci-fi. So I thought I'd talk about him. With his magazine that you'll talk about. Which I'll be talking about his publication, Famous on Monsters of Filmland as well. Which, you know, it's his legacy. I said that. <laughs> Let's hear about the monsters you were talking about. Ah, real monsters. <laughs> horror. Terror. Monsters, makeup, but enough about us. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the birth of horror as we know it, which I know that that word's going to give us a lot of trouble as the night goes yes, on. Yes, it is. Let's just swap it out for something that's a little easier to say. Prostitute. Prostitute movies. Yeah. Ladies of the evening. <laughs> Painted lady movies. My Jasmine scented movies. <laughs> I love to watch them when, when fall comes around with a candle. Prostitutes? Under, under my blankets, I like to watch them. <laughs> Is there any other place for them? Mm-hmm. What? Fear wasn't invented in L.A., but what we now view as the film genre of horror and most everything we associate with Halloween was created and groomed and crystallized here. So what's the first thing that you think of when you think of Halloween? Pumpkins. Oh, God. Vampires. A Nosferatu? Just keep going. A, a Frankenstein. 
Thank you. A Frankenstein's the first thing I thought of, but I was scared to say it. After you think of pumpkins, Nosferatu, and vampires, you think of a Frankenstein. <laughs> the doctor, right? So you think of the good doctor. So that and all the other monsters, as we know and see them now, and just American Horror in general, they were born in the valley at Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. So as I asked before, why Universal? And even deeper, why was Universal even in LA? Why did movies come to LA? As usual, it's time to start at the very beginning. <laughs> we got to get to the root of this. 1512, dawn on a lone tree in a sleepy Pueblo town. <laughs> Frankenstein was walking down, going a pass. <laughs> Christopher Columbus lands at Plymouth Rock and he's greeted by the Wolfman? <laughs> <laughs> the idea of a scary movie didn't start in L.A. The first scary movie that you can consider being made was in 1895 by the Lumiere brothers called The Joyous Skeleton. Mm. It's scary if you find a 45-second clip of a dancing skeleton scary. I really, I do. What is widely considered to be the first scary movie, though, is Manor of the Devil, made in 1896 by Georges Méliès. Mm-hmm. It's about like a magician or something. <laughs> Luring a lady into his castle and turning into a bat and all sorts of things happen. Who's in that, Vincent Price? Yeah, it's it's starring Tom Cruise. <laughs> and I guess that sort of thing was scary back then. So was a train leaving a station coming <laughs> at you. So, only because it was ahead of schedule. <laughs> it was unheard of back then. But of course, there was only one place where scary movies could really start to take shape germany naturally great leaps in the horror movie genre they usually happen in times of great like turmoil and uncertainty as we'll soon see happened in la with universal and what was going on in germany after world war one definitely fit that bill Mm -hmm. what was once a country full of sausage guzzling fiercely proud germans became a babysat country full of confused and traumatized and defeated people after world war one so even worse the sanctions that they imposed on germany after the war they were brutal and life wasn't easy for people okay so what grew out of this were the expressionist movies like the golem mm. the cabinet of dr caligari in 1920 and those were the starting points of all horror movies yeah. then in 1922 nosferatu happened and planted some ideas in the minds of some movie makers over in america Those those three were German? The Golem was German? Golem was German. I didn't know he that. He was Jewish, but... German. German. Nosferatu, the movie, by yes. the way, it was not authorized by the Bram Stoker family, which Oops. is why it's not called Dracula. And they hated it. The Stokers hated it. Why? Um, Max Schreck does the eye thing. And they tried to have all the copies of it destroyed, but luckily a few were saved, but 30 minutes of the original have been lost forever. So let's go back a few years from... That we're happening. Going, we're going back a few we're years. Go, look, it's kind of like Lost. <laughs> this is going to be our first experimental time jumping episode. <laughs> so fade in. The Los Angeles Public Library. So we'll go back a few years over to the motion picture capital of the world. That's right. Fort Lee, New Jersey. <laughs> so LA wasn't even a sparkle in the eye of the sleaziest movie producer at that point. In 1906, a German Jew from Germany named Carl Lemley. You just love saying <laughs> Germany. Germany. He opened up a movie theater in Chicago and things went well for him. So not long after that, he started a film rental service where he would rent out new movies to other theaters to show as well. By 1909, he figured why rely on other people's products? So he opened up his very own movie production company, the Independent Motion Picture Company, a.k.a. Imp. 
Okay. Lemley had all of his movies filmed in Fort Lee at what he called the Universal Movie Studio, which was the biggest movie studio in the world at that point. Their first movie was a short called Hiawatha. Like the little boy with like, the butt. Yeah, like the little Indian boy with the butt. The little butt boy. <laughs> so their first feature was called Traffic in Souls. It was about a prostitute, which is telling from the, a painted lady. Horror. It, it's telling from the very start where Universal was ultimately headed. So not long <laughs> So not long after Lemley set up shop, Fox Film came and made their own studio there, then Goldwyn Pictures. They only made movies about foxes though. Yeah. So then Goldwyn Pictures came, then Biograph came, then Metro and Solax. I try to guess which ones of those are still around. <laughs> Fort Lee was an ideal location because it was so close to New York City where all the workers lived and where the main offices were, and then they were in this open space to film. They had these steep cliffs nearby that was very photogenic. Yeah. Unfortunately, also nearby was an evil man who had set up shop a while earlier, Thomas Edison, who oh, had the motion no. picture patents company. What Edison did was he bought up all the patents for all the mechanisms on all the machinery that was required to make movies and then would sue other companies for making wow. movies or as he saw it, profiting off of his patents without <laughs> permission. He's like the Monopoly man. He's Mr. Burns. He's Mr. Burns. He tried to block the sun. <laughs> he owned the patent on solar flares. <laughs> what is that? A bright light in the sky? Who owns it? I want it. <laughs> I do now. In 1912, Edison's trust forced Lemley out of his distributing interests so he combined, Lemley combined with a bunch of the other independent film studios and formed the Universal Film Manufacturing Company. Supposedly, he got the name because he looked out of his window and saw a truck, a plumbing truck called Universal Plumbing. So that was it. Wow. Yeah, fun. So Lemley being the... It wasn't that he owned the universe? Actually, Edison had the patent on the universe. <laughs> so. so being the mogul that he was, he soon asserted his dominance, all of these disparate studios that were there in this thing. So he consolidated them, and now he was the supreme leader. Wow. But the problem remained that Edison was being a real wet blanket about all of this. So they needed to get far away from New Jersey, so as, shot as everybody should. Yeah. Yeah, so, so they hired the godfather. Mozzarella Buffalo. <laughs> Mozzarella de Buffalo. <laughs> Some studios had tried out Florida, but they found that the weather was too unpredictable and there were Cubans everywhere. But it was too long. It, it, wasn't, long, <laughs> it wasn't long until they found the promised land of L.A., so the first movie company to come to L.A., as far as I could tell, was the Biograph Film Company in 1907. They brought with them Mary Pickford, who would later go on to become a noted chili burger fiend. <laughs> She's more of a ghoul, really, when it came to <laughs> cheeseburgers. Ghoul. In 1910, Lemley opened up his Imp Studio at Sunset and Gower, opposite the already existent Christy Nestor Studio, while still having most of his productions taking place in Fort Lee back in New Jersey. And then after the Edison shakeup in 1912, Lemley started to focus his attention more on LA and in March 1914 he bought a 230 acre plot of land in the valley called Nestor Ranch for $165,000 that's the most goats I've ever seen in one transaction they were more some of them were lambs <laughs> lambs was the change <laughs> so a year later on March 15th 1915 this land was officially opened for business under its new name, Universal City. But this wasn't just a movie studio. It wasn't just the biggest movie studio in the entire world either, which it now was. It was its own unincorporated territory. Oh it was God. the first entirely self-contained municipality that was dedicated purely to the making of movies. It had its own fire department, had its own hospital. 
<laughs> it had a hospital. It had- <laughs> Everybody got suckers. It even had its own zip code, which is 91608. Mm. So remember that. But save that in your phones. We'll do its own episode on the zip code of that. It'll be called Universal City 91608. Even Frankenstein came by with a motorcycle and took Shelly. You guys, I think the Invisible Man might have a drug problem. <laughs> so even from the start, it was a tourist attraction at Universal Studios. Visitors could come and they could pay to visit. Opening day saw thousands of people that came to watch as they filmed some Western movies. From the very beginning, there were tours you could take of the different movie sets. And the tours, they stopped in the 1920s because when, when sound came along, it was too loud. And then they restarted again in 1964, and they've been going ever since. Okay. That's the tram tour, you know, yeah. jark, jark. Shark Jaws Jark <laughs> That's what that movie I've been saying it for years That's what that movie Should have been Clong, The gorilla <laughs> And Blyco <laughs> Universal City Wasn't just significant For pushing LA Towards the intense focus That it now has On making movies It also introduced The idea Of basically turning A movie studio Into a factory Of movie making But Back in 1912, Fort Lee was the movie capital with only 15 studios, meantime, were working in Hollywood. By 1915, 60% of all U.S. film was being done in L.A. So why L.A.? Is that in the eight pages you have right here? <laughs> I was hoping you could answer that. So like I said, Edison was making things really difficult for people to make movies, so the studios wanted to move as far away from him as possible so that he couldn't catch them violating his patents. Right. And in L.A., even if he did decide to come and get them... <laughs> They would have so much warning that he was coming, so they would have enough time to flee to Mexico. Oh, my God. Uh, Also, labor in L.A. was very cheap in the entire city. Ask me why. Um, The people that they were who resided in the place they're trying to flee to. No. (laughs) Second guess. (laughs) Italian. About you, little boy. (laughs) Pick him up. (laughs) Take that Abba Zabba out of your mouth. The reason why it was cheap in L.A. is we talked about this not that long ago. L.A. was a non-union city, oh, so true. labor was very cheap. The The building hadn't exploded yet. <laughs> is that a figure of speech that I don't know? No. What are you talking about? I could be dumb, too. Just like <laughs> <laughs> Nobody could be dumb like me. You know that. <laughs> so just as important, L.A. had perfect film weather. It was almost always sunny in Philadelphia, and it was dry enough to film outside. In other words, drought weather. So the sunlight was especially important because film stock back then needed a lot of light to expose properly. There were also a lot of types of landscapes around. There was the city, there were mountains, there was the beach, there was Venice, there were farms, there were ports. Everything was within an hour of each other. We have why they came to L.A., but now why did Universal start doing horror movies? Guess this time. The people who resided in the place they're trying to flee to. (laughs) Bingo! (laughs) So, like I said before, during times of serious financial crisis, there's usually a huge leap forward in the horror genre. Yes. And what greater depression was there than the Great Depression? (laughs) So, each studio had their own way of dealing with the depression. Warner Brothers started doing really gritty gangster movies to show how grim the world was and what the Prohibition underworld was like. MGM tried to distract you from reality with big-budget, star-driven movies. Movies. Others, they made musicals, Sing the Pain Away. Others, like the Marx Brothers, Charlie Chaplin, they tried to make you laugh it all off. Yeah. Universal's form of escape was through horror. <laughs> <laughs> You'll leave the theater thinking, eh, it's not that bad. <laughs> at least I'm not being harvested for my brain. <laughs> oh, wait. It came at a perfect time because all that dread and fear that people felt 
watching these movies, they related to that so easily <laughs> right outside of the theater. So Universal was considered at the time one of the little three studios. So their budgets weren't very big, which lent itself well to the horror genre. And being one of the smaller studios, Universal wanted to find a way to stand out from the rest. Around this time also, Hitler was taking control of Germany, which put an end to the expressionism movement back in Germany. Yeah. And a lot of these filmmakers that were doing horror there came to Hollywood and they started giving really? their own ideas to these things. So the first Universal movie considered as the prototype of the horror movie was The Hunchback of Notre Dame mm-hmm. in 1923, for which they built a life-size replica of Notre Dame Cathedral in the hills above Lancashire. Really? Yeah. A life... That's like bigger than most buildings in LA. At that time, <laughs> certainly bigger than almost all buildings in LA. And it was so that some hunchback could they waddle could, around in it. They could drive junk Lon Chaney over there. <laughs> That was his son. But the first big step forward in the horror genre was The Phantom of the Opera in 1925, starring the man of a thousand faces, Lon Chaney Sr. as The Phantom. He was also Quasimodo in The Hunchback. Chaney Sr. was born in 1883 in Colorado. Both of his, those marijuana smoking legalizers, (laughs) both of his parents were deaf and mute. So starting from birth, he had to learn how to be really expressive without speaking, which came in handy because that's all you do in silent movie acting so he became a theater actor first and in 1905 he met his wife Cleva Crichton who was also a performer in Oklahoma City and then they soon had a kid who we'll talk about we'll talk about that later Mm -hmm. and then they moved to LA to start performing there and their careers weren't that good they weren't doing so well and Cleva was getting a little despondent and then in 1913 while Cheney was performing at the Majestic Theater which used to be at 845 Broadway across from the Orpheum mm-hmm. it's now a parking garage <laughs> as everything it's a is great that parking about. lot beautiful you can the acoustics are great for that <laughs> parking garage so Cleva while Cheney was performing Cleva was standing in the wings and she decided I think I'm gonna kill myself <laughs> oh my god so she drank a bottle of mercury bichloride and she survived but her vocal cords didn't and she was never able to sing again also killed by the poison was their marriage (laughs) Cheney later remarried but his career in the theater I say that he later remarried well I'm gonna bring up uh, first off the names of everybody's offspring in this and uh, how many Marriages were involved okay. with these people. We'll There's keep a, a tally mark for everybody. I think we should. <laughs> so Cheney's career in theater, because of the scandal, was not good. It was not good. So he decided to try his luck in the growing film industry and got hired that same year as an extra, making three dollars a day. Cheney eventually got the chance to act in some supporting roles, and people started to notice how talented of an actor he was. And soon he started having starring roles. In all, he ended up acting in 157 movies throughout wow. his career. And the reason he was considered the man of a thousand faces was because he played such weird and different characters and he did all of his own makeup and completely transformed himself to inhabit each unique character. So he would spend painful hours applying makeup and prosthetics to himself to make himself unrecognizable in each role. And he was really innovative with what he did. When he had to play a double amputee, he developed a harness that strapped his legs to his back so he could hop around on his knees. Like, it would hurt him to do this stuff. And the guy who wrote Psycho later on, he described Chaney's face as the face of naked horror, which... Wow. It is. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I mean, naked prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) So a joke at the time was that if somebody was going to, like, go to squish a spider, they'd say, don't, it might be Lon Chaney. (laughs) 
Uh, also, he almost literally wrote the book on movie makeup when he wrote the movie makeup entry in the 1929 Encyclopedia Britannica. He was the first actor to be against the notion that was already setting in among the movie studios that an actor should be cast to look the part. He felt that it's an actor's duty to become the part no matter what you look like or who you are. So he didn't want to be a star by being glamorous and beautiful, which was also what, you know, that's what people were starting to become. He wanted to be a hideous monster. You want to be the grossest thing you could look at. So by the time Phantom of the Opera came out, Cheney was a huge star, but this movie itself was a huge event. They built another, a giant replica of the Paris Opera House on stage. Did they not learn how to like angles? Angles didn't exist back then. So they built it on stage 28 of the Universal lot. It was the first steel and concrete stage ever made for a Hollywood movie. Over 5,000 people were on screen in this movie, which is a lot of people, I think. Did everyone get paid or what? No, only three of them. <laughs> you, you, and you. <laughs> <laughs> and that person, Mickey Mouse. You're going to love this. They used live rats to film it. Mm-hmm. Not just live rats. Was it like hold up the cameras or what? They weren't union. <laughs> Anybody could do anything back then. You wanted to have a sound guy? Get a possum. You didn't want to go pay a writer from the what some sort of guild? You know, you can get a cricket. So not only did they use live rats, there were so many live rats that they needed a rat handler to keep them in line. By the way, I, I sent in your application to become a rat handler. <laughs> they, they really want you. What year was this? Uh, 1925. Okay. While the rats are being exterminated because of the plague, they're being harbored by Universal Studios. Like, no, come here. It's safe. It's safe here. Come on. <laughs> You look innocent. Come on, yeah, put your work. You're a good kid. Death to all rats, unless they got that spark. <laughs> They're the real whole the words. Yeah. <laughs> the real painted ladies. <laughs> so when the movie came out, Universal really hyped up how scary it was going to be. They spread rumors that the film wouldn't be released because Cheney's makeup was too scary. <laughs> they wouldn't put up pictures of his face for promotion because they said it had been censored. They even said that people were fainting and vomiting during the showings and they would put ambulances in front of the theater just to freak people out. Cheney was poised for even bigger things since Carl Lemley Jr., who was Carl Lemley Sr.'s son. This is the first of a very confusing line of names. I really couldn't think of a better, like, Bill. The hubris. The hubris. Thank you. The, the hubris. hubris of these people. Lemley Sr.'s son and Jr. started to run Universal around 1928. So Jr., Lemley Jr., wanted to make a Dracula movie which Lemley Sr. thought was smut and and would only allow it to happen if Chaney Sr. were starring in it. So they got Chaney Sr. on loan from MGM because he was working there at that point and Chaney was, his idea for the movie was he was going to play both Dracula and Van Helsing in it, which would have been been great. Unfortunately, or I don't know, fortunately, I don't know. He died of pneumonia five weeks before they were set to start filming at age 47. So nowadays, stage 28, which was the Phantom of the Opera stage, it still exists and part of the set, this is where it gets a little scary, part of the set from Phantom of the Opera still stands inside of it. Isn't that scary? That is scary. What do you think, little boy? (laughs) (laughs) He's waking Uh, up now. So it's still there and it's said that Chaney's ghost is said to be seen running around in a cape or holding a chandelier in there. (laughs) Like I mentioned, Carl Lemley Jr., his real name was Julius, but he went by Carl Lemley Jr. This looks good on paper. I am looking at paper right now. 
It's looking pretty good. <laughs> Leave the room. Leave me alone <laughs> with the paper. Lemley Jr. took over the operations of Universal in 1928, like I said, and he started steering Universal heavily into the direction of horror. That year, they made The Man Who Laughs, which mm-hmm. is said to be the inspiration for the Joker from yeah. Batman? Batman. Can Bat- we say Batman now? Oh, Birdman. Birdman. Oh, wait, no, that's a movie. Oh, God, what can we say? Monkey Moose. A Dracula project had been in the works in different forms, including one that would have had Conrad Veidt, who nope. was from the guy from Cabinet yeah. of Cap, Cap, Cabinet Cap, of Cap, 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 the, Cap, Cap. Cap, Cabinet of Indian in the Cabinet of Cupboard. He, he was also in uh, The Man Who Laughs. He was in Man Who Laughs. Spoiler alert. Oh, Jeez. boy. Oh, boy. Consider it. <laughs> I'm just making sure that you're informed because sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't seem so. So they wanted him to play Dracula, but after Cheney Sr.'s death, Lemley Jr., who was 23 at the Julius? time. Orange Julius. <laughs> oh, my God. It's the same guy. It's all connected. So he was 23, and he settled. And in their eyes, I really mean settled on what ended up being the perfect person to play the part of Dracula, Bella Lugosi. So Lugosi, another tragic story. <laughs> Lugosi was born Bella Ferenc Deso Blasco in 1882 but he took the name of his hometown Lugos in what was then Austria-Hungary now Romania which was near the western border of Transylvania perfect Mm -hmm. from a young age he started acting and by the early 1900s he was the number one theater actor in Austria-Hungary he even played Jesus which is interesting I've seen that picture yeah Yeah. it's weird it is weird I mean they both came back from the dead Oh my god (laughs) They both involve blood I think Oh you're right One of them has wine The other one just needs it to live He was a good citizen He fought Jesus Jesus was a great soldier (laughs) He fought in World War I But once the country Started to change Lugosi was chased out Of the country Again for being Pro-actors union It all comes There's a lot of union Stuff going on They take it seriously People just hated unions. Oh, wait, no, onions. Sorry. So he made his way to the U.S. Lugosi eventually found the role he was born to play in the stage production of Dracula, Mm -hmm. in which he took part in 256 performances. Wow. When he found out that Universal was making a Dracula movie, he knew that he was the only man for the part. Unfortunately, it seemed like Universal wanted anybody else on the planet other (laughs) other than Lugosi. What was that kid doing? No. (laughs) What was that lady doing? He basically had to beg them to let him play the part and they finally agreed to give him the part but at a quarter of the salary that they were paying I don't know why they were so against him so after Dracula Universal offered Lugosi the starring role in their next movie Frankenstein but Lugosi turned it down because he didn't want his face covered up by makeup because he was just so pretty (laughs) and because there were no speaking lines which the heavily accented person in movie history I want more lines I want more lines in English so him rejecting Frankenstein turned out to maybe be the worst decision he ever made because he never managed to recapture anything even close to the success he had in Dracula after this. And he loved the character of Dracula. He wanted to play Dracula in all the sequels, but uh, Universal would not let him. And maybe they might have been bitter that he didn't play Frankenstein. I don't know, but they wouldn't let him. And he ended up being relegated to like insult, like after being Dracula, these insultingly minor roles in other Universal. Like he's he's the the gypsy that dies after like two minutes in the Wolfman, just these tiny parts. So the only times he actually played Count Dracula in a movie out of all the sequels and crossovers that they did was the original Dracula and an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And That's he, it. And he kills it in that, too. <laughs> the way he opens that coffin. Never lost a beat. 
So he even got so desperate that he eventually did agree to play Frankenstein's monster Mm -hmm. years later in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So things got even worse when Lugosi became addicted to morphine after an injury around 1935. And then after that, he became addicted to methadone and Demerol. He would mask his addiction on set by sipping on burgundy wine all the time. (laughs) Like Uh, blood. Oh my God, (laughs) his communion wine. (laughs) So he was doing that, but a drug addiction and a failing movie career is a very bad cocktail. And the wheels just started coming off. And while he was still doing okay, Lugosi lived in Beechwood Canyon at 2835 Westshire Drive. But once he started losing money, he moved around to a bunch of several different places around the city, but most notably in what was referred to as the Dracula House in North Hollywood at 10841 Whipple Street, which was just a five-unit apartment building. Wow. (laughs) And it was right near Universal, which was kind of sad. It is sad. So Lugosi, he had been married, get a load of his marriages. He had been married while he was still in Europe, but I think she died really young. For a second marriage, he married a rich widow from San Francisco in 1925, but that lasted for three days. Wow. Because he was having some sort of affair with Clara Bow. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he was. (laughs) He managed to burn through a third wife, but don't worry, he found a fourth. The saddest part of his story was that the only filmmaker who would have him in his movies towards the end of his life was Ed Wood. Who was Edward Jr.? <laughs> he certainly was. <laughs> so this chapter of Lugosi's life is told in the movie Ed Wood. He's played by Martin Lando, for which he won an Oscar in 1994. Lugosi ended up divorcing his fourth wife in 1955, and then he promptly checked himself into rehab for three months. When he got out, he was hopeful that he would have a triumphant comeback. He was clean. This is it. Unfortunately, he was relying on Ed Wood <laughs> to stage his comeback, and when this wasn't clearly working out he started drinking again on the plus side he did find a fifth wife hey look at him so a year after getting out of rehab Lugosi died of a drug related heart attack during the filming of Plan 9 from Outer Space uh, what many consider to be the worst movie of all time it's just slow and makes no sense that's all (laughs) didn't they they used like because he died so they just used like footage of him in his like rocking chair and then they got his stunt yeah he got someone to like it was like a chiropractor or something who like edward thought his brow looked like bella lugosi's and so that's why he's covered up in a cape (laughs) so lugosi died in his hollywood home at 5630 herald way with a copy of edward's next script on his lap final curtain in 1956 he was 20 he was 21 he was (laughs) he was ageless he was a vampire Heart attack. He got yeah, married a stake in the he heart was, attack. He got first married when he was nine. <laughs> so he was 71 years old. Okay. He was so poor when he died that his old friend Frank Sinatra had to pay for his funeral. And here's another ghost story sort of thing. During his funeral procession, his hearse was being drawn by horses. When they got to Hollywood Boulevard, the horses pulled out of the driver's control and they rode down Hollywood Boulevard down the same path that Lugosi would take every day to get his newspaper and cigarettes. Wow. So his grave now is in Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City. Holy Cross! (laughs) He was a very vain man. And his hair was dyed black before he was buried. And he was buried in one of his Dracula capes. Of course he was. Naturally. I think he even had the like the med- med- medallion on it. Imagine if you opened up his thing and fresh as the day he died. <laughs> what day is it? Oh, crap. I'm late. <laughs> That's my best Lugosi impression. Oh, crap. <laughs> I heard Dracula. they're making a Dracula TV show. <laughs> Has it been cast? (laughs) Lugosi's only child was a boy named, you guessed it, Bella Lugosi Jr. (laughs) 
There's also an official Lugosi family website, which is absurdly bad. You can, it's bellalugosi.com. Go to it and look at it. You can send emails to the Lugosi family through it. It's ridiculous. It's I, absurd. I almost want to pause the episode to do that. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't ruin this magic. Back to the actual movie. Dracula came out in 1931. It was what people considered to be the first official monster movie. This was also the first horror movie to have sound in it, an invention that the horror genre really used to great effect. For whatever Lugosi became later on, he was so perfect for Dracula, especially since they had sound, they could really use his accent, which that voice combined with his look pretty much defined what we now view as the image of evil. Like that's, Mm -hmm. you you think of an evil person, Dracula, Dracula. a a Hungarian. (laughs) Dressed in all black who lives in a castle by himself. Well, not by himself. He has three girls there too. (laughs) He lures little children there. (laughs) Like us. An armadillo. There's armadillo in that movie and people make fun of it. So Lugosi knew this character so well from the stage show that he insisted on doing his own makeup He'd even stay in character and costume on set, mumbling to himself, I am Dracula. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you. (laughs) He took the role really seriously, and when he was later on the set of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he would get frustrated at Abbott and Costello... Hello. Constantine. <laughs> For always playing jokes, he would get mad at them. This is serious. <laughs> so when Dracula first came out, here's what's interesting. Not everybody knew the story like we do today yeah. or even knew what vampires were. As we've established, people back then were stupid. We know that. <laughs> Everyone knows that. So when they watched the movie, they were finding out for the first time that Dracula, Count Dracula, oh, he's not just some royal debonair. We can't trust. They were slowly finding out yeah. that he's someone to fear which is something that nobody is ever really unless you're like four watching the movie you're not going to experience that ever again and that's because Lugosi's performance was just so like unforgettable and Dracula has since become the most portrayed character in movies of all time he's been in 272 different movies since horror as a genre didn't really exist before Dracula came out they didn't really know how to market it So they released it on Friday the 13th, but it was February 13th, and they released it as a Valentine's movie, (laughs) and they gave it the tagline, the strangest love story of all. Between who? Dracula's teeth and a girl's (laughs) neck? Just, they just didn't know, like, like, how would you mark, what would you say? Like, oh, here's a story about pure evil sucking your blood. Don't go to sleep tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So despite this weird marketing campaign, the movie sold 50,000 tickets in its first 48 hours. Interesting side note on this, while Dracula was being filmed, at night, a different crew would come in and film a Spanish version of the movie with Mexican actors, and they used all the same sets. And the grandkids of the star of the Mexican version are the people that made American Pie. (laughs) Isn't that... Weird. That's so strange. Is it is it a just Dracula but in Spanish? Or it's, is it a, it's the same movie. It's Dracula. The same sets. Everything's the Dracula same. Ghost, he speaks Spanish. He spoke so much. <laughs> Yo soy <laughs> Dracula, because <laughs> Dracula is feminine. Anyway, Dracula was such a huge success that Universal scrambled to put out its next monster movie just nine months later, Frankenstein. So Frankenstein was also a popular stage play in England. So Universal figured it would be the next logical monster movie to bring to life. They 
found just the man to bring it to life when a bit actor named Boris Karloff waltzed into the <laughs> Universal Commissary one day wearing what he thought was a really nice suit. He thought he was looking so good. And then the director saw him and knew right then that this was his unholy monster. <laughs> <laughs> his sleeves go up to his elbows. He doesn't fit in that thing. <laughs> What's that sticking out of his neck? Is his shoes made of wood? Why is his head so flat? <laughs> Hire that man. <laughs> so they teamed up with the now legendary makeup artist Jack Pierce, Pierce to put pounds of prosthetics onto Karloff. It took between three and eight hours to make him even more hideous than he already was. So Pierce <laughs> a went... handsome young man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Handsome. In a horror monster sort of way. <laughs> they didn't like each other, by the way. Look, he's no Bella Lugosi. Really, they didn't... Pierce and... And Karloff didn't like each other. Wow. They were not like... They didn't fight or anything. I don't think Pierce... It seemed like nobody liked Pierce because <laughs> he would spend like... You know, we could just put like a rubber band on that. No, I got to use human flesh. He knew how to get paid. He did. This is going to take like (coughs) six hours tops. How perfect that the two people that didn't get along had to spend like literally half the day together every day. (laughs) Pierce went on to also do the iconic makeup of the Bride of Frankenstein, the Mummy, and the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. So when Karloff was moving on the lot from the makeup department to the filming set, they would put a burlap bag over his head so that people wouldn't see his what he looked like before the movie came out. So the movie cost under $300,000 to make. It took in over $5 million. It was an even bigger hit than Dracula was. It rocketed Karloff to movie stardom that lasted much longer than Lugosi's his knack for playing like strange and horrifying characters mm-hmm. let him he was became listed in credits as Karloff the Uncanny and eventually he was just Karloff <laughs> just the name it became like a shorthand for terror yeah so if you saw Karloff oh I'm scared I'm scared right now I'm his scared. name's all over this you paper. shouldn't have said it Karloff 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 <laughs> Karloff was born William Henry Pratt November 23rd 1887 in the suburb of London he became an orphan at a very young age he always wanted to act but he would only ever watch plays until he was well over he was over 21 years old and then he moved to Canada and joined an acting troupe but they were like what plays are you in and he listed all these plays that he had only watched but he said he had been on in all of these so when the curtain went up on his first show he was making $30 a week by the time the curtain came down he was making $15 a week (laughs) so he moved to Hollywood in 1918 but he was still only interested in theater and he worked as a truck driver around town on the side after switching to movies and he hit it big in Frankenstein which he was in his 40s when Frankenstein came out so Karloff like I said He was in a lot of other horror movies, including eight where his co-star was Bela Lugosi. He only played Frankenstein's monster in three movies, the original, Bride of Frankenstein, and Son of Frankenstein. But when they were making Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, he felt like they were making fun of the character, (laughs) that he really really did care about Frankenstein, so he didn't want to take part in that. Lugosi didn't care. (laughs) Oh, is he not doing it? Okay, I'm all over that. I could be all of them. You want me to? I'll be Abbott, 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 Costello, whoever. (laughs) I'm here to audition for Abbott. Bud. Karloff was also one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild, another union which was very dangerous to his career in town at the time because it was so anti union. He was the ninth member ever to join it once it got started. He later went on to have his own horror based TV show, Thriller, from 1960 to 62. Mm -hmm. He was also the Grinch and the narrator in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. 
We talk about that many times, I feel like. <laughs> he lived in a few places around L.A., in Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, Van Nuys. He even lived in North Hollywood, also next door to W.C. Fields, which is a movie in itself. Yeah. Frank One of them is watering the on, the other one's muttering. One of them is uh, being chased by angry, pitchfork-wielding citizens, and the other one's Frankenstein. <laughs> One of his last movies, or at least what's probably best that we consider to be his last movie, was Target. Target. In 1968, which addressed this whole movie horror movie past and why the world eventually rejected people like him it's a very good movie it's a very la movie valley, yeah very valley movie too very valley movie very horrifying also in a different kind of monster way i'll get to it <laughs> so he has two stars on the walk of fame one for movies one for tv he's also the only person other than the u.s president to be on a stamp more than twice karloff as well was married five times his only child was a daughter who was mercifully not named boris jr <laughs> he died february 2nd 1969 in england and for playing the most monstrous of all the universal monsters, he seemed to have the... He was the most well-adjusted yeah. and nicest, it seemed, of all of them. Universal followed up in 1932 by introducing their next iconic monster, The Mummy, which was also paid by Boris Karloff, which was the studio's way of cashing in on the Egypt mania that was going through the nation after the discovery of King Tut's tomb and okay. the supposed curse that came along with that. Yeah. The Mummy was basically seen as a retelling of Dracula, but with a dead Egyptian instead of a uh, Hungarian. But the makeup that went on Karloff for this was really, like, incredible. Yeah, I love, I love the it's makeup such, the it, took, it would take eight hours to put on, and it was so hard to do that he's only in the full mummy makeup once in the whole movie. And the rest of the movie, they just made his face look dusty. <laughs> but you <laughs> still took Jack Pierce half the day to do it. I gotta get a <laughs> That's not special the right dust. dust. Yeah, that's okay. not the right dust. I need dust from King Tut's tomb. <laughs> but just thinking of Karloff in that mummy makeup with his arms crossed across his chest, mm -hmm. like what, just what an icon that yeah. image is. And after the mummy came the Invisible Man in 1933, which was supposed to star Karloff, but he was busy, so they used Claude Rains. Who's very good in it. Very good. Even uh, I didn't. Uh, was I he? I couldn't. I haven't yeah. seen he it. does very good voiceover work in the movie. <laughs> he wears a prosthetic nose like nobody's business. And then he throws it at somebody. After that came The Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, which is considered by most people to be the greatest of it all is. these movies. Can we talk about The Bride real quick? What do you want to say? The actress Elsa Lanchester, who is a really great actress, who you might recognize from that episode of I Love Lucy, where they pick up the hitchhiker and they both think that they're the, the, the like highway killer. Yeah. She's also the, I, I didn't know this, the grandmother in National. Lampoon's vacation, the one that dies on the, or the ant. It's really? the ant, yeah, the, the ant that dies on the way to uh, Wally World. That's Elsa Lanchester. <laughs> That's the Bride of Frankenstein. That's so weird. When I sat and thought about it, like, oh, yeah, they have the same eyes. That's right. <laughs> Those bird-like movements. <laughs> all right, that's all. So, <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. I don't want to talk about the girl movies. <laughs> Universal had made horror a brand at this point, and that inspired the other studios around town to have their crack at it. MGM made stuff like Freaks. Paramount mm -hmm. were making Jekyll and Hyde movies. Not everybody was thrilled with all these horror movies. Yeah. The people that weren't happy about this was the censors that were starting to take hold of Hollywood. The Hayes Code was kicking in and was objecting how gruesome these movies were and Universal was really like they were making some really edgy stuff before yeah. they started cracking down they were making movies like Murders in the Rue Morgue which mm -hmm. was Lugosi's second movie after Dracula it had real prostitutes <laughs> and there was like human experimentation there was like some like 
bestiality sort of stuff. Freaks it, is a, another one of those movies yeah. that's like, oh yeah, there should be censors. Yeah, <laughs> please, we need a couple. They didn't like Universal was showing rats. They didn't. Like, I agree with them. <laughs> they didn't like women lying on sofas to be on screen, and worse than lying on sofas, Universal was criticized for having women be the victims in these movies, which is something that, like, yeah, women need to die first in horror. <laughs> like that's the common thing now. The British Board of Film Classification had their rating system. They had two letters. They had U for universal viewing and A for adult viewing. After Frankenstein came out, they had to create a new letter, H for horror, which eventually wow. became the X rating. <laughs> you just close those two prongs of the H in and you cross them. Different cities at this time, they could recut the movies however they saw fit to censor it. Yeah. So in Kansas City, they cut Frankenstein so badly that it was half the running length by the time they were wow. done with it. 15 minutes of The Bride of Frankenstein has been lost maybe forever because of censors. What all this meant was that now universal horror movies kind of dwindled toward the end of the 30s as the movies they weren't the ones they were putting out weren't as big of hits until they made son of frankenstein 1939 which showed that people were starting to show an interest again and universal asserted its dominance once again in 1941 with the wolf man mm-hmm. universal's first werewolf movie had been werewolf of london in 1935 and that was actually the first like hollywood the real werewolf movie Hollywood ever made. The Wolfman was a departure from the previous monsters that Universal had been filming because by this time the Lemleys were no longer running Universal. So the new executives wanted to create their own original monster by the name of Larry Talbot. (laughs) So, So while the 30s had seen monsters based on gothic literature and mad scientists, the fears of the 40s led to horror taking the form of like animal human monster hybrids. Yeah. What helped the Wolfman become such a hit was that it came out just a few days before Pearl Harbor happened which was at a time when men in real life were turning into monsters as well and murdering each other. So Universal wanted Karloff to play the part again, but they ended up with the son of one of Universal's early megastars, Lon Chaney Jr., who was born Crichton Chaney in Oklahoma City on February 10th, 1906 to Cleva and Lon Sr., but he was born three months early, and when he came out, he wasn't breathing. So his dad had to run outside and plunged him into the Belle Isle Lake, which shocked him back to life. Wow. And then his dad nurtured him in an incubator that he made out of a shoebox with breathing holes punched into it. (laughs) Always the innovator. Oh, you mean a (laughs) shoebox? So he grew up with his famous dad in L.A. He went to the Los Feliz Grammar School. He went to Hollywood High. But his dad would not let him become an actor, even though he kind of wanted to. Mm-hmm. He was a tall man. He was six foot three. He was taller than both Lugosi and Karloff. Was he really? Why yeah. does he seem s- You know who's sound? the smallest? I know. You know who's the smallest? Karloff was the smallest of all You're of them. Are you serious? Isn't that weird? He's he small? Was, he, was, he was like my height. That's really small. <laughs> so small. Three foot four, isn't it? That's, that's not that small. <laughs> Help me out of this chair. I might fall down. Cheney Jr., he ended up working for the General Water Heater Company until his dad died in 1930, and he finally decided to try acting. Unfortunately, things didn't go so well for him, so in 1935, to try to get a leg up, he reluctantly took his dad's name and became Lon Cheney Jr., and it worked. So his career took off. He had a home in the valley above Ventura Boulevard. He went on to become the only person to play all four of the big universal monsters, the Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Mummy. Unfortunately, he developed a serious drinking problem. On most days, he was drunk by 1 p.m. Good for him. (laughs) Whatever it takes, Buster. We're going to put up a picture of him young and then look at it old. I know the difference between Wolfman and Spider-Baby. About 4,000 gallons (laughs) of alcohol. So eventually, he got dropped by Universal because of his drinking, and he eventually died July 12, 1970 
1973 in San Clemente, his body was donated to USC to try to figure out how do you cure lycanthropy. <laughs> he had been married twice, and he had two sons. Their names, Ron Chaney wow. and Lon Chaney Jr. Jr. <laughs> Not the third? No, Lon Chaney Jr. Jr. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a normal child that's going to grow up. <laughs> so after the success of The Wolfman, Universal just started pumping out sequels to their older stuff rather than move forward with new characters and it didn't take long for audiences to get tired of these sequels and the legitimacy of these horror movies dwindled and got demoted to b-movie status what was suggested as a joke by a writer so that he could get some money to buy a new car became reality when frankenstein meets the wolfman came out in 1943 and started a tradition of crossover monster movies that became the first like shared universe in movies that's now the norm for all the superhero stuff today. The Universal Monsters switched toward comedy for a little bit with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That came out in 1948. That film was added to the National Film Registry in 2001. After World War II, gothic monsters didn't seem so scary now (laughs) that nuclear bombs existed. So going into the 50s, horror took the form of science gone wrong and malicious aliens coming to get you. So Universal came back in a big way in this new form of the genre with Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954. The Gilman became the unofficial sixth universal monster. The Gilman was designed to look like an Academy Award with fins and a fish head. Oh my god, was it really? Yeah, and look at it. It makes sense. It does. It's very strange. That's why I want him. I just want him. (laughs) I just need it. But the movie was filmed in Florida, so who cares? (laughs) It was also the first one that wasn't based on either a great novel or or like a legend like the Wolfman was. Mythology. Mythology, yeah. yeah. No, Abbott and Costello weren't uh, Greek gods or anything, were they? They were Western heroes. Like Wyatt Earp <laughs> and Dr. Holiday. <laughs> so the Universal Monster Age officially came to an end with the third Gilman movie in 1956, The Creature Walks Among Us. Tell, tell me about that one. <laughs> he gets badly burned, so they do a surgery so that he can breathe on land and he wears a suit. <laughs> So I think it's best that these movies end <laughs> The legacy of these monsters was kept going the next year, though, by the British Hammer Studios mm-hmm. with The Curse of Frankenstein, which brought back serious monster movies and made stars of Peter Cushing, the uh, guy who said, fire when ready, and Christopher Lee, uh, Saruman. Universal <laughs> distributed all these movies in the U.S., but Universal itself's golden monster era was over. All the monsters were made into U.S. stamps. They were slaughtered and turned into U.S. <laughs> stamps on October 30th, 1997. Vincent Price got his start in these old movies as did Gloria Stewart who went on to become the old lady in Titanic oh is that right yeah so these movies they so defined what a wolfman or a Dracula or a Frankenstein monster should look like and they're just so ingrained in our culture that even if you've never seen these movies you feel like you have and they were all born out of the San Fernando Valley mostly on the European street at Universal Studios Mm -hmm. it was just cobblestone that's the only difference it was back to the future but then like oh throw cobblestones in that road let's get going (laughs) but what if someone needs to skateboard on these. <laughs> Give them a hoverboard. <laughs> Part two. So these movies, they look like LA. Yeah. And they're That's infused with such like an LA vibe. Even in The Wolfman, Larry Talbot says that he worked on the Mount Wilson telescope. Like there's all these LA yeah. references. So what was key to all these movies was that all the monsters had very human desires. Dracula wanted pleasure. The Phantom of the Opera wanted to be able to love a woman. Frankenstein wanted to be not hated. He wanted to be accepted. Yeah. Everybody had their thing. And they dealt with what 
like terror and monstrous behavior we all have inside of ourselves that we're all trying to repress, which I think is a very LA kind of concept. Yeah. And all this because Universal Studios favored genre over stars, and they made it so that a horror movie meant a monster movie. And Universal has always taken its horror very seriously, which is why their Halloween horror nights are always such a big deal. Yeah. Uh, one person even wrote that when the bats fly low and night is in the sky, Universal Studios are at their best. <laughs> so now what's going on at Universal right now? Horror movie trends, they're described as being horror cycles. So the monster movies that we were just talking about were considered the universal gothic horror cycle. Right now we're sort of in the tail end or we just left the zombie cycle. So you can tell when a cycle's ending when parodies start showing up, like the Abbott and Costello movie marked the end for Universal, like Shaun of the Dead and stuff like that for zombies. Mm. But Universal is trying to make the next thing a whole new monster cycle. They did that, the Mummy reboot in the 90s, the Brendan Fraser one. They did Van Helsing in 2004, which was the first time since Abbott and Costello made Frankenstein that Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, and the Wolfman were all together. Uh That was the first time. And then in 2010, they did the Wolfman remake. Right now, Dracula Untold just came out, and their plan is to create a Marvel-like universe for all of these Uh, monsters. uh, They reshot the end of Dracula Untold to try to make it fit into this, but the official reboot is coming June 2016 with the remake of The Mummy. That's the official start of it. After that, they're going to do The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Frankenstein, and The Invisible Man. And they're all going to fight the Monster Squad. (laughs) They're somehow going to destroy a major city. The guys in charge of this are the guys that made the Fast and Furious movies and Transformers. But they also, one of them also did Star Trek and The Amazing Spider-Man, so maybe. Maybe. But I don't think so the problem is that dracula and frankenstein are public domain now so other people are trying to beat them to it like the frankenstein movies coming out in 2015 with daniel radcliffe but we'll see you talk about the movies and the stars let me talk about the fans of all of this junk mm-hmm. are you gonna talk about me oh you're a fan and to talk about the fans i think we should talk about the ultimate fan as he's referred Forrest J. Ackerman, Forey as he called himself and as his adoring fans called him, was a father of horror and sci-fi fandom. He was one of the first big collectors of movie memorabilia and his magazine, Famous Monsters of Filmland, which in large part was a display of his collection, inspired a new wave of horror films that, that became like the 60s and the 70s stuff. Everybody who was fans of the stuff he did grew up and made movies in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. I think he was a, a big part of the resurgence of like campy 80s horror which could be campy at times and they're fun and now they're being revered like the way that people revered the yeah. movies in the 50s yeah. so Forrest J no initial point J Ackerman <laughs> was born in Los Angeles he was a hometown hero born on November 24th in 1916 I couldn't really track down what exact area he lived in I have a feeling that he lived near the Coca-Cola plant on Central <laughs> Avenue by the 10 freeway but it also said he, he might have been like Chuck Jones like a Hollywood kid mm. so I can't really figure out his grandfather was George Wyman, the man who designed the Bradbury Building. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, the Bradbury Building, contrary to what I and probably a lot of people Wait, think... Brad, Ray Bradbury didn't design that? Oh, my God. <laughs> I got to make a phone call. <laughs> I have so many people to apologize to. Contrary to what I and probably a lot of people think, it was not named after one of his four's best friends, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> it was named after a Lewis Bradbury, who was a mining millionaire turned real estate developer. Lewis Bradbury, I say. Yeah. In my heart, it's always going to be Ray Bradbury's building. It's always going to be Harrison Ford's... Theater. 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 Harrison Ford Theater. 
Wyman himself designed the building based on a description from a science fiction novel called Looking Backward 2000 to 1887 by Edward Bellamy, who wrote it in 1887. In the novel, the hero is taken to a commercial store of a utopian society in the year 2000. Imagine that, 2000. The year what a, 2000. What a world that'll be. Here's the description. I was in a vast hall full of light, received not alone from the windows on all sides, but from the dome, the point of which was 100 feet above. Beneath it, in the center of the hall, a magnificent fountain played, cooling the atmosphere to a delicious freshness with its spray. Is he talking about the subway that's in there? (laughs) (laughs) The walls and the ceilings were frescoed in mallow tints, calculated to soften without absorbing the light which flooded the interior. Around the fountain was a space occupied with chairs and sofas on which many persons were seated and conversing. With the exception of the fountain, everything seems pretty close to what Wyman would end up building six years after the novel was published. He put it up in 1893. The story of how Wyman was encouraged to move forward on the project is a strange one. Mr. Wyman and his wife, Forey's grandparents, were spiritualists. Uh, George was uncomfortable with taking the responsibility for the project because it was it was sort of too much for him at the time. So he consulted the spirits to see if it was a good thing to do. Using something called a planchet, which is similar to like a Ouija board, like, like the Ouija board piece, yeah. they traced out this message. If you build it, <laughs> Live. <laughs> Mark Wyman, take the Bradbury building and you will be successful. Successful. That's very specific. It was very specific. Uh, I read somewhere else that it also said, take Bradbury building. It will make you famous. I don't know which one was true, but he, whatever, they consulted the planchet and it told him to move forward. The Bradbury building is one of the oldest office buildings in Los Angeles and it was used in several science fiction flicks such as Indestructible Man with Lon Chaney Jr., The Outer Limits, Blade Runner. His grandparents were also responsible in burying for Sacrament in movies because they were rich and they I were thought, grandparents. I thought his grand I thought his grandparents outlived him and they buried him with a bunch of cassette tapes or something. Ackerman said that in one year his grandparents themselves nerds obviously for asking ghosts for advice and designing okay. buildings after a futuristic book. It took four to see three hundred and fifty six movies in one year. Really? And one day managed to get seven films in. What? All apparently in the Broadway theater Can you district. Even watch that much on Netflix in one day? <laughs> What's their internet speed like? While well, he watched a lot of movies, horror and science fiction were his favorite. His first big love, as far as movies, was The Phantom of the Opera. He remained a Lon Chaney fanatic all of his life. And his favorite film, which he never strayed from his entire life, he always said his favorite film was Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Mm. He also loved another science fiction film named Things to Come, which will ironically. Oh, I've a, seen that. Have you? Yeah. It's ironically a thing that will come back. It's a thing to come. Yeah. yeah. He slowly began leaning in the direction of science fiction. At the age of nine, he discovered an issue of amazing stories and completely fell in love with it. He kept that exact issue his entire life because he kept everything his entire life. Because he was mentally ill. <laughs> because he had his a disorder. <laughs> <laughs> he began collecting stuff around that age. And when his pulp paperback collection reached 27, his mother had to warn him, like, someday your collection is going to hit 100. And he said, I'll show you, wench. I'll show you how much a nerd can hoard. At the age of 10, he was writing to magazines and studios offering his opinions on movies and as early as 13 he was writing science fiction stories and getting them published in 1931 he wrote a trip to mars that was published with the san francisco chronicle and around that same time he was an associate editor for the uh, time traveler which many cite as the first fanzine he wrote his entire career while he worked uh, on the jobs that he ended up becoming famous for and he always published under really (laughs) insanely nerdy pseudonyms like dr acula (laughs) <laughs> he was a fr- I guess he, he worked with Ed Wood so I always wondered if that scene in Ed Wood where Ed Wood's trying to pitch Dr. Dracula I don't get it Dracula I always wondered if that's a, a nod to Forrest Ackerman no no it's stupid trust me he also went under um, SF Balboa Jacques de Forest Herman 
clairvoyant. Oh, God. Trigonometry J. Poindexter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, supposedly was writing for a low-key under-the-counter lesbian magazine called Vice Versa under the name Lorgy Ermain. <laughs> Now, as we both know now, the 30s was a heyday for horror films. Universal monsters were some of the most recognizable monsters around. And I just said that. <laughs> I literally just said that. Can we rewind this? Now, because he was flourishing as a nerd and the studios were recognizing his name, when he came around asking for studio props and collectibles, which at the time they were just going to give away, they were not reluctant to just hand it over to this guy who was asking <laughs> for it. So he started with movie stills and posters at first, and then he started getting props and really good ones, too, as his career career went on he became more famous eventually he would acquire his entire collection as gifts like they would make a movie and like what do we do this give it to Forrest Ackerman <laughs> on a personal note speaking of early horror he was one of the only people to see that lost uh, Lon Chaney film uh, London After Midnight oh yeah thanks for bringing that Are up talking by the about way senior or junior senior you chucklehead <laughs> we, we only know London After Midnight from uh, these incredible steals and in steals? his still steals still like a steel mill like steel mill a movie steel mill so in his collection of stuff that he had not only had he seen london after midnight in his collection he has lon cheney's top hat and the teeth from the movie oh, it's not it, his fake teeth open that grave up <laughs> Forey at this time he was in his late teens was becoming a homing beacon for like-minded nerds who are becoming obsessed with this new genre i don't know if you know who ray Har harryhausen is the special effects guru yeah that's right the paramount of the special effects industry <laughs> who created a uh, form of stop motion model animation known as dynamation which <laughs> is when the screen is split so actors and stop motion monsters can mm. be on the same screen together he created the original mighty joe young he did monsters for uh, it came from beneath the sea 20 million miles to earth jason and the agronauts 1 million uh, years bc what did i say agronauts isn't that what it's called no <laughs> Let me start over then. <laughs> he did the dinosaurs in 1 million years BC, and then he also did all the stuff in Clash of the Titans, which was one of my favorite movies. The new one? Yeah, the, the What about Wrath one. of the Titans? Did he do that? He did the muscles on all the men. <laughs> when uh, Harryhausen was a young man, he was out in Hawthorne watching King Kong for maybe the third or fourth time. And after the film, he was leaving the lobby, and he wanted to photograph these beautiful movie stills that they had. And he asked the theater manager, oh, is it okay if I take pictures for this impending career that I want to, I need inspiration for the, what I'm going to do with my life? And he's like, oh, it's not, it's, it's not ours. It's this kid named Forrest Ackerman. Here's his phone number. So they got in contact and he came over Forrest Ackerman's house. He's like, hey, nice house. Cool stuff here. I like how you have everything from King Kong. Let's be friends forever. And they were friends forever. Cute. Cute. It's a cute story. It's a neat cute. Um, I don't know if he had these at the time that Harryhausen came over or not, but at some point in his career, he has the Brontosaurus and the Pterodon from King from the original King really? Kong. Really? He has it in his collection, yeah. Oh my God. Didn't that... Uh, no, no, no. The T-Rex is the one that King Kong ripped his jaw open. I was he, thinking that it was two T-Rexes fighting each other, but then I thought, wait, where's King Kong? <laughs> Just sitting back and watching. They're yeah, almost, I, like, I this. like this. I could get used to this. <laughs> he was the founder of a nerd club called the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society, which started in 1934 with editor of Wonder Stories magazine, Hugo Gernsback. Uh, he put up a flyer for a meet in a bookstores all around LA, and one of these nerds who responded was a young Ray Bradbury. That's how they became friends. The LASFS uh, started meeting on the 7th or 8th floor of the Pacific Electric Building on Main Street but then soon moved operations to the brown room of Clifton's Cafeteria oh, really? where there was free limeade and lime juice for everybody. <laughs> and if I was a member, I couldn't have any because I have acid reflux, so they would have kicked me out. Nerds love yeah, tangy stuff. They wouldn't stuff. let you in anyway. Excuse me. I will be with the horrors. They also got free food if Clifton saw that you didn't have any money. Clifton would just like find whatever. That's Clifton for you. And there's a theme throughout this. I realized afterwards that Ray Bradbury didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. That's why he spent so much time in the library. <laughs> That's why he said school was dumb. 
All you need is a library. Can I have some change? That's the full quote. Can I have some change for food and feeding the typewriter at the library? Anyways, they met every Thursday night and would discuss matters such as space platforms, going to the moon, which hadn't happened yet. And one of the members was a rocket expert. He was able to comment on the matter. Also part of this club was two authors I really like, Lee Brackett, who wrote a science fiction epic called The Long Tomorrow, as well as writing screen for Empire Strikes Back. The Long Goodbye, which was an adaptation of Raymond Chandler's novel. She was also one of the best female authors in science fiction history. Just whatever. No big deal. Henry Cutner, who wrote a lot of pulp classics like Rats in the Graveyard, which is really good. You think I wouldn't like it? I like it. Robert Heinlein, who wrote Stranger in a Strange Land, was part of this group. A lot of cool people. I wouldn't have been part of it. Nope. You would have. Yeah. Nerd. They would have liked me. You I would look, have been their king. You would have been their king, and you would have loved free food and limeade. <laughs> I would have loved that. God. God damn it. Anyways, born the, in the wrong time. <laughs> the brown room. I also feel like I could have been Dracula. but <laughs> <laughs> Listen, everybody could have been Dracula. If you got there before Bella Lugosi, you would have been offered the part. <laughs> the brown room of the Clifton Cafeteria became almost the imperial court of science fiction. The epicenter, like what is now science fiction lore, like starts there, basically, wow. because of Forrest Ackerman. I want to eat in that Room. A week after meeting Bradbury, Forey hired this out-of-work chump to come to his home and start working on Ackerman's fanzine, Imagination, where Bradbury would, in 1938, publish his first story. You know, because the only way he can get a story in is as if he's the editor. Uh, he also <laughs> paid for Bradbury's bus ticket to New York so he and Forey could attend. No money. This no man. money. Nothing. He had a... there. Like even Uncle Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> I just need a bus ticket to that there New York City. I wrote a thing about quantum physics. <laughs> so they both could attend the world's first science fiction convention in 1939. This was a big deal for several reasons in regards to fandom and Forey. Uh, Forey dressed up for the event as a hero from Things to Come, one of his favorite science fiction films. No one had ever dressed up like that before. This was one of the first instances of cosplay at a convention. Wow. Yeah. He really was a loser. He was a nerd. Oh my, he probably had the at the real costume <laughs> from the movie. <laughs> Where'd you make that? No, I, I got it. In the future. <laughs> Where my grandfather made it. So Bradbury and Ackerman were really great friends. They were friends for their entire lives. Uh, there's a really great photo of the two of them in 1939 dressed up as like ghouls for Halloween. And they would later, after that photo was taken, go to a showing of the Cat and Canary where they ended up scaring a little girl in the audience. <laughs> he would also lend money to Bradbury to create his own fanzine, Future of Fantasia. No money. Always needed money. Loser. Chump. He maybe he shouldn't be burning all those books. <laughs> Could have sold a few. And once again, we have to announce that World War II happens. And soon after that, poor little nerd, Forey Ackerman was sent off. Or he enlisted, I don't know. But he was stationed safely in Fort MacArthur in San Pedro. He never once saw... <laughs> was he involved with the... The uh, Battle of Los Angeles. He's probably the one. <laughs> Aliens! <laughs> He's the one that started the alien rumor. I know how to squash this butt quick. Not even. He would have been on. Um, he would have been as high as possible. Not high, like getting high. He would have been like the highest peak possible. Like, take me. I'm ready. I've I've studied your culture, and I'm ready to go with you. It's just a Japanese kamikaze pilot. <laughs> oh, that I'm that I'm not interested in. Safe. Fort MacArthur, he never saw any combat. But what he did do was run the um, the newsletter, the Fort MacArthur Bulletin, which I'm sure he tried to sneak in references to Jupiter. <laughs> and they're like, stop. No puns. The only space we want is between words. Don't do this to us. He was very happy to be done with the military, even though he never saw combat. And he was only like 40 miles from home. Sounds like me at camp. War is hell. <laughs> His experiences before and during the war on the publication led Ackerman to pursue a career as a literary agent. And in his catalog, he had Isaac uh, Asimov. He had A.E. Asimov. 
Asimov. You know, what? I was just making fun of somebody in my life for correcting somebody of how they pronounced it, and here I am doing it. You're a scumbag. Eh, what can I say? Eh, I need to be corrected. Apparently, I need to have my pants dropped. I need to be spanked in front of everybody. <laughs> Please don't use the S word. <laughs> Excuse my foul language. I apologize. <laughs> he had in his repertoire. He had A. E. Van Vogt. He had Rod Serling. He also worked with L. Ron Hubbard, the headpiece of Scientology, <laughs> when Hubbard was a young science fiction writer. Yeah. He insinuated that he was a liar and also, you know, for a lot of different things. He also worked with uh, Ed Wood, who he regarded as a drunk. Edward, Ed, Edward. Edward D. Wood Jr. Ed Wood Jr.? Yeah, Ed Wood Jr., yeah. He was a drunk, yeah. He was a drunk. Yeah. I can't, we can't take that away from him. No. 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 He was them. one thing. <laughs> he was a drunk. Probably bad at that too. Waka waka. <laughs> so in the fifties, movies started leaning because of the atomic age towards monster movies, like monsters that were giant. I told you this. I Listen, told you all of this. Did already. we write this together? Harryhausen was perfecting claymation and dynamation at this time, so he was a big part of uh, this this lean towards these certain kinds of movies because the technology was there. Also popular was campy horror films, like they were getting goofier, parodying as a, as you said, and the audience got much younger. In particular, young boys, like the one we have. Sleeping right here. <laughs> also around this time, localized horror hosts were becoming... What's in his bag? <laughs> he better have some jelly beans. Does he have any now and later? <laughs> That's so Smarties away. We're doing him a favor. <laughs> yeah, favor. <laughs> I like Smarties. I feel yeah. like I'm always defending myself you, for liking smarties, smarties. You are. You are. You, you, for your whole life, you will be. Mm-hmm. Around this time, localized horror hosts were becoming popular, and young boys and girls were staying up late at night watching classic monster movies with goofy, pun-driven horror hosts such as Zachary and Vampira. So because <laughs> there was this huge fan base for old classics and new monster movies as well, there was this huge window left open for something to come in and solidify the fandom. So he hooked up with a publisher named James Warren of Warren Publishing, who has put out really great horror comics like Eerie and Creepy, if you know those. Nope. They're really great horror comics. I had podcast over. In 1958, Ackerman and Warren created Famous Monsters of Filmland, which, funny enough, was referred to as Forey's Folly. Another folly for us. A lot of follies. A lot of follies, which had a real fancy... Nobody believes in anything. Nobody, no. And then they succeed, and then they get squashed by society. This is a perfect time to bring up... Have you ever had a Dianetics test? Are you happy as a person? What do you both know the answer. (laughs) Yes. Okay, yes, I'm happy. I'm very happy. I don't need a personality test. I'm fine the way I am. What are they called? E something? Uh, Ecstasy. What are You're they? the nerd. I'd ask you. Um, I. Uh, what? What are? Um, th- thetas. Okay. Thetas. All right. I'm glad we just spent that much time <laughs> promoting a religion that. Uh, one of us. I can't afford that. I would love to. Can't afford it. Someday when I'm rich, I'm going to be a Scientologist. <laughs> like Jason Lee, Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> and the lady from King of Queens. <laughs> my three favorite actors. <laughs> Famous Monsters of Filmland had a real fanzine quality to it. It was printed on really cheap paper and it was black and white. It was really cheaply made, except for the cover, which was always beautiful. But it quickly became popular. It was the first issue sold 200,000 copies. The first the issue? The first issue. You know how many downloads we had of our first episode? 199,000. Yeah, we didn't make it. I mean, it sounds like a little bit, but... We didn't get famous Monsters listeners. (laughs) We got as much listeners as the homeless guy who's talking to himself in the desert. Cacti. I got the plural down. Cactuses? Cactopus. <laughs> the magazine was aimed at 11-year-old boys who were monster-hungry. Famous Monsters was fueled by the love of horror and sci-fi, which was there because of Forey. Silly puns, which Forey was fantastic at. He was great at wordplay. And it was also uh, fueled by Forey's large collection of memorabilia. He was able to use all his movie stills and posters as photographs within the magazine himself. He didn't have to ask studios for permission. He had all these stills. So he just used them in the magazine. 
Sounds like copyright infringement. That's not what brought him down. <laughs> the cover of the first issue has Warren dressed like a well-dressed and groomed Frankenstein and a beautiful blonde looking up at him adoringly. And I feel like this sums up 50s and 60s horror so perfectly. <laughs> you have this horrid monster and the woman who loves him. But most covers were drawn beautifully, and I really do mean beautifully, by an artist named Basil Gogos, <laughs> who, who has a great monster name. Looks, <laughs> Is it B- Basil Gogos? Basil Gogos. Basil Gogos. Basil Gogos. Yeah. He's great. You should look up the, the covers. They're fantastic. They make monsters look so alluring and monstrous, but beautiful. It's he just. I had to give a shout out to him. I hate I hate the phrase shout out. Wow. You're the one saying it. You're the only one that's saying it. I had to give him a mention out. Famous monsters talked about old movies and new movies and paid tribute to the movies and the stars. But not only them, they also paid a lot of tribute to the behind the scenes men, which was part there. I feel like this I is. I love that band. Like horror has a certain love for guys who are able to do special effects well and i think yeah. it stems from famous monsters being able to pay tribute to like oh jack pierce did this oh you know rick baker did this and stuff like that he also paid a really big tribute to his fans the fans of the magazine so all these encouraging fans to send in photos of them in their costumes and, and makeup that they did themselves and he would publish it in he also included his phone number in each issue so fans could call him but back then how many people really had phones you can climb up the the telephone pole <laughs> and put a, a tin cup on it. And yeah, listen to the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've all seen Green Acres. <laughs> it's the place to be. So I hear it's not as good as that Pedigo Junction, but you know, <laughs> seen too much TV. The magazine was bursting at the seams with silly puns. Readers were encouraged to write in Fang Mail. Oh God! He would always give fans what they asked for. Oh, After all, he was a fan of the printed weird. Oh. <laughs> All kinds of puns. James Warren used to hold up a sign that said, I am an 11-year-old boy right like, to me. And that's what you got. Yep. Speaking of puns, Forrest Ackerman is responsible for the term sci-fi as a pun on hi-fi, high fidelity, or science fiction. <laughs> he said if you were a fan of soap operas, you must love cry-fi. Uh, and if you love James Bond, like the Menendez brothers, you must love, guess it, um... Spy-fi. Oh, I was going to say Spy Another Day. I don't know. This is why I was not Forrest J. Ackerman. (laughs) Anyway, that's all very punny. (laughs) The magazine had his patented style of humor and his love of horror and science fiction. It, It was like an extension of his personality, which is why people took to it so well. In the magazine, he also featured himself a lot, the big ham, and he referred to himself as Uncle Forey. And because of his prominent appearance in his own magazines, kids really grew to admire him as one of their own, like a big kid. He was called by Robert England, we also know him as Freddy Krueger, as the... Went to see son. Went to see son. Why did we bring that up? Because uh, he's here with us right now. (laughs) This is all a dream, people. Do you want to say something, Mr. England? Oh, no? Oh, okay. (laughs) It's probably best he doesn't talk. He's not that interesting. I mean, he is here, but he's just not that interesting. Also here, (laughs) Rick Baker... And the body of Bella Lugosi. Oh, we just had to know about the medallion. Fresh as a daisy. It's there. He is not cast in a new. He is cast in a new Frankenstein versus uh, Wolfman remake by McGee. <laughs> We're trying to stage his career comeback that he always wanted. What better actor to play the undead than the dead? But well, we again got him hooked on methadone. Oops. Our fault. fault. (laughs) I'll take full responsibility for that. As well as featuring articles and interviews and puns, the back ads of the magazines are just as renowned. They they were put together by the Captain Company, which put out toys and horror memorabilia and has been especially nostalgic to old fans. I have a couple issues and I go through it and I'm like, I could still order this, right? (laughs) You get masks, model kits, life-size monsters, costumes. Like Dana Gould says, 
you get a monster mask and an apron with a photo of the monster you are. So really you're just dressed up as a fan of that monster. They sold action figures, cardboard cutouts. They sold dolls. They have a life size and he was tall. Zachary poster to put on your door and I want it. <laughs> they still have a website, Captain Company, and you can go there and get Famous Monsters shirts. Famous Monsters of Filmland is also responsible because of Captain Company and Forey's own collection with creating the nerd who collects everything subculture slash disorder. Now let's talk about Forrest Ackerman's house, yeah? Yeah. 2495 Glendower Avenue in Los Feliz. I believe up in the hills around Mount Doom, you know, some people refer to it as the Griffith Observatory. <laughs> Forey had other names for that area. He would refer to the area as Horrorwood, or holy weird uh, in the beautiful state of California. Yep. <sighs> King of it. That's why the Fort MacArthur Bulletin was like, Let's kick it back <laughs> a notch. Enough. We got to end this war. <laughs> the deciding factor in dropping the bomb on Japan. <laughs> we got to end this magazine. It was the headquarters for Famous Monsters of Filmland, which means the address was printed in the magazine along with his telephone number. But the house was also just his 18-room house. He lived there, and fans were encouraged to come by on the weekends and take a tour of the place led by Ackerman and his wife, Wendane, when they started doing tours. Wendane? Tour Wendane, yeah. She was German, I think. Mm. Uh, they started doing tours in Trader. 1951. <laughs> I, to this day, will keep meeting people who are like, oh, yeah, I went there. Oh, yeah, I met him. Like my, my older brother, Mondo, and his wife, or his then really? girlfriend had been there. And they're like, oh, we didn't know you would be into that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I might have been into that kind of thing. Oh, you like fun? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you like to see everything in every movie since forever? <laughs> I had to, and you can, watch tours of the place on YouTube led by Uncle Four himself. They have a lot of footage of it. The Acker Mansion, as it's called, of obviously, of course, of course, was practically a museum of movie memorabilia, which the Smithsonian Institute called one of the 10 best private collections in the world. Wow. He had 125,000 movie stills, 50,000 books. In one interview, he says um, that people approach him and say, oh, you haven't read every single book in the collection. He's like, I've read every last word. <laughs> Whenever I get a new book, I turn to the last page and I read the last word. <laughs> uh, he has movie props. He has posters. He's a liar. <laughs> He's a snake, like a Hubbard. He has movie props, posters. He has a lot of monster models used in movies. He has autographs. He has 250 editions of Frankenstein, right? 255 editions of the Dracula novel, Frankenstein novel. He has, like I said, some dinosaurs used in the original King Kong. He has life masks, which are really creepy, of like Karloff and Peter Lorre. And yeah, I know. Lugosi, Vincent Price. He has one for Lon Chaney, who was a big fan of Charles Blouton. He has a. And he has uh, the guy who played the Gill Man's actual face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bill. Yeah, he's over there. Bill Man. He has a prop coffin used in Frankenstein which he used as a coffee table he has a shred of the wrappings used in The Mummy he has Dracula's cape that Lugosi used in the stage play and some movies he used the one that was used in Plan 9 from Outer Space wow. he has two rings one that Lugosi wore in Abbott and Castellamy Frankenstein and one that Karloff wore in The Mummy both of which he wore regularly well into life for anything he did that was his engagement ring <laughs> do you will you be my bride of Frankenstein <laughs> he also had a room dedicated just to Karloff and Lugosi which I'm sure to have to share the room the audacity he also had a room dedicated just to Lon Chaney, which he had incredible stuff. His old buddy, Harryhausen, gave for a lot of monsters he used in movies. He has currency and the mon uh, monocle used in Metropolis, his favorite science fiction film. I was thinking of the Monopoly. <laughs> he has the origin story comic boards for Vampirella. It's a sexy vampire that he and comic artist Trina Roberts created. He created Vamp Vampirella. When I was a kid, my mom took me to uh, something called the San Diego Comic Convention, which people now know as Comic-Con. Hmm. And uh, I fell in lust with Vampirella. I have a... Uh, a signed photo from some 
hussy who dressed up like her, whatever <laughs> year that was. He has the last autograph from Vincent Price, who was on his deathbed. He's like, hey, Flory, come over here. God. I know. He has a $35,000 functioning gremlin that two of his biggest fans, special effects wizard Rick Baker, who did the transformation scene in American Wealth in London, and Joe Dante, who did Gremlins and The Howling. What happens if he gets it wet? Joe Dante, who's a biggest fan, who's a really great director, who did The Howling, put uh, for a, a cameo in uh, The Howling. He has a framed copy of a two-page short story that a 13-year-old boy had sent him called The Killer. It was written by a little kid named Steve King. Little Stevie King? Little Stevie King wrote it. Stephen Prince when he was younger. <laughs> if you couldn't catch that, it grows up to be Stephen King. Oh. I got it. All right, now I get it. I think, in my opinion, the crowning jewel uh, on a personal level for Foray was a painting called Amazing Foray's. It was done by the same artist who drew the cover for the Amazing Stories issue that he kept all his life that initially was the catalyst for his entire love of sci-fi. The painting is almost the exact same image, except the artist added Forrest Ackerman into it, and he added at the bottom, this is your life, Forrest J. Ackerman, <laughs> which I think is really neat. Uh, in the guest book, all Lugosi could write was amazed. That's all he knew how to write in English. <laughs> English. He was so hopped up. His fans, like like I said, Rick Baker, Joe Dante, uh, John Landis, Roger Corman, George Lucas, were all growing up and had been inspired by Forey and Famous Monsters of Filmland, so much so that they wanted to make monster movies now. And they were making really great ones. And it said that the first time that Steven Spielberg and Stephen King met, the first thing they talked about was Famous Monsters of Filmland. <laughs> now, Forey has a lot of cameos in movies. Like I said, he was in The Howling. He's in a quick scene in Thriller, the Michael Jackson uh, music video directed by John Landis. Inspired by the Boris Karloff TV show. It's all big net. He wasn't a great actor, but the fans just loved seeing him. Like most of the time he was instantly recognized because any true horror fan would be like, oh, that's Uncle Forey. But times were changing. The late 60s, early 70s horror films were, were just like hate sleaze and angry and had very little room for like the fun, innocent monster movies of the late 50s. Exploitation stepped in with gore and nudity and there was a lot of competition as far as other monster magazines such as... Vietnam! You had Fangoria, you had Monster Mania, you had Monster Times to compete with. You also had movies like Herschel Gordon Lewis was doing like Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs, which didn't fit into any magazine of that time <laughs> other than like Hustler. Like those are ugly, hateful movies and I love them so much. Mm -hmm. Famous Monsters tried keeping up, but it was, was kind of awkward and it lost its true quality of affection. So the magazine ended up folding in 1982, but Ackerman kept driving forward as a literary agent. He also kept free tours of the Ackermansion and there was also a live horror host there which I think was really neat. And I wish there was video of that because he would have been really, he would have been the best at it. He would have been like a Bob Wilkins or Joe Bob Briggs. It was just his personality and his love for movies. He didn't have to dress up. You could say, oh yeah, <laughs> Uncle Forey, you don't need to do it. He's like, Mr. Rogers, yeah, you're fine. So then sad stuff happens. You know how I love Targets from Peter Bagdanovich, which has mm -hmm. Boris Karloff's last movie? His first movie, by the way. Was it really his first yep. movie? He's also in the movie as an actor. Yep. Boris Karloff's last movie. Yep. Well, in sort of. Oh, sort of. I love it because it's about how people keep making these horror movies about castles and curses, but the true horror is like real stuff, like Kent State and Charles Whitman going into a clock tower and gunning down a lot of people, and how random violence was in the air in the 70s. Anyways. <laughs> Anyways, in 1990, the love of his life, Wendine, was killed during a violent carjacking in Italy, and she was stabbed, and then she died from kidney failure. God. Like, imagine that happening to someone who loved innocent horror movies and it was as friendly and nerdy as Forrest Ackerman. Like, the love of his life must have been devastating. Around the same time, and maybe because he was trying to occupy himself with his other love, he tried, some say, was persuaded to revamp Famous Monsters of Filmland. Revampire, as he probably called it. I could be him. Any day of the week. <laughs> but he had a falling out with the new publishers and ended up losing his hold on the magazine, as well as losing a lawsuit which financially crippled him. So much so that he had to sell off the Acker Mansion and his astounding collection. Mm -hmm. 
in an interview, he sort of bitterly says, like, Spielberg or Lucas could have paid for it in petty cash. <laughs> like, he could have paid for somewhere to store all of this. So if you see a Famous Monsters film on now, don't buy it because it's not, it's not endorsed by Ackerman. It's whoever won that lawsuit. Ray Bradbury told Alec Times very angrily, we live in a stupid world. I believe in the future, <laughs> Forrest believed in the future, and no one else cared. And, you know, you can't ask Ray Bradbury for money. Things to come. <laughs> Soon after, he suffered a stroke and he had an infection, so that put him in the hospital. A dedicated and loyal fan, Tim Sullivan, who ended up doing a remake of 2000 Maniacs called 2001 Maniacs, because it was put out in 2001, was there by his side when they gave Ackerman his last rights. But... That's not how all horror movies go. His last bites. (laughs) Ackerman survived against all predictions that monstrous son of a gun. He established the son of Ackermansion, which was a much smaller bungalow, but (laughs) he housed all the most prized possessions. Public storage. (laughs) (laughs) People like Sullivan and many other uh, loyal fans would take old Uncle Forey out to the House of Pies, or the House of Dyes, as I like to call it. Like every Really? Yeah, they take him out to the House of Pies. I normally don't like that place, but I suddenly am hungry for... Pie houses right now. Die houses. <laughs> now still well respected in the horror and sci-fi cult horror and sci-fi culture. He lived to be ninety-two years old. He passed away in two thousand eight. But because of his supreme hamminess, you can see him on the countless interviews on YouTube. You can watch Ackerman Engine Tours. You could watch on YouTube this like hour-long footage of a famous monsters of film on convention where you see like Ray Bradbury and Joe Dante and John Lannis just eating dinner. Just <laughs> hanging out in the in a ballroom somewhere. You can see him in cameos. You can always track down an old issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland from eBay and call up the number and you never know who will pick up. The ghost of Forrest Ackerman? I'm just some asshole living in Los Feliz. That's- this isn't Forrest Ackerman. Please it's, leave a message. It's Bella Lugosi. And that's the story of Forrest Ackerman. Uncle Forrest, as I, like I call him. him now. I like him, too. I like him. Nerd. Yep. He would have liked... I mean, Allie Meekly, he would have liked Oh, my it. God. He would have been our only like. <laughs> Is that a pun? I better jump all over it. If anybody outside of LA is listening to this, or anybody in LA, that would be nice. <laughs> we uh, we created horror. Los Angeles <laughs> created horror. We created fear here. Yeah. We manufactured assembly line fear. Scariest city in the world, Los Angeles. If you're looking for a city. The city of screams. <laughs> <laughs> Avenue of the scars. <laughs> Hollywood Boulevard. Uh... <laughs> The uh, scary four oh five, <laughs> the Goro five. Oh yeah, there we go. The San Fernando scary <laughs> Shinglewood. What? Because <laughs> shingles are scary. Oh, I got another one. Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> oh wait, ghosts. Uh. <laughs> Summation. Happy Halloween. Oh my god, I, I forgot to buy a present. I've been sitting here wrapping this present for you for an hour and 58 minutes. <laughs> I wrap my present for you. It's a mummy. <laughs> it's for mummy. Not only was the basis of the Universal Monsters here in LA, but so was the basis for the fandom that grew and then generated the, the new wave of horror that hit 80s again when it was revived with all its silliness. Not the 90s because most 90s horror movies are kind of lame. <laughs> now we have horror conventions. We have a lot of uh, special effects people coming out. That's Uncle Flory so is still happening in and LA. And the area around Universal and Burbank. There's, it's always very Halloween-y year-round yeah, exactly. in Burbank. Yes, it is. It's very, very trick-or-treating. Yeah, you demon want, people. Demon people. Uh, pagans. Rituals in the middle of the street. Oh, that's why Burbank closes at 4 p.m. every day. <laughs> Naked people. The wicker man. Uh, every girl I see is Carrie. <laughs> so, did I just get right now that at the beginning of the movie she has her period and at the end of the movie she's covered in blood? I think you did. I think it took you a long time. She turns into a tampon. 
Gary, the human tampon. <laughs> Check us out. On iTunes. If you're not going to iTunes, the Tumblr will lead you to everything. The Tumblr will lead you to everything. We're it's... on Twitter. Do things on Twitter. Facebook. At Ali Meekly. Like things at Ali Meekly. Like things on Facebook. 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 Be our friend. We w- would love w- it. Don't forget the www. Oh, the World Wide Web. Yeah. Okay. Um, HTTP colon slash slash. Yeah. Forward slash. Oh, you can't forget that. No, you won't go anywhere. That's been episode 11. Wait, is that episode 11? We just did episode 11, I episode believe. Episode 11. Because last time we did episode 10. <laughs> so you mean 11's after 10. Anyway, next month we'll be back. I'm Daniel Jr. I'm Greg, third wife of Bella Lugosi. <laughs> and that's been L.A. Meekly, keeping Lugosi high since 2013. Silver Bullet Lake. <laughs> <laughs>